When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello and welcome to High Theory. Today we are talking about the environmental unconscious with Stephen Swarbrick. Before we begin, Stephen, would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, my name is Stephen Swarbrick. I'm an assistant professor of English at Baruch College, part of the uh, City University of New York. Um, my research focuses primarily on early modern literature, uh, psychoanalysis, eco-criticism, critical theory, and I'm the author of a new book, The Environmental Unconscious, Poetics from Spencer Milton, which the University of Minnesota Press just released this year. Congratulations on the publication. And I am so excited to ask you my very first question, which is, what the heck is the environmental unconscious? That's a good question. It might be helpful to listeners to begin by defining the unconscious before diving into my term, the environmental unconscious. Since my book is indebted to Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, and Jacques Lacan, the French psychoanalyst who devotes the better part of the 20th century to rereading and interpreting Freud, I guess the first thing to say is that the unconscious, uh, the definition of the unconscious shifts. Um, so it's not necessarily a stable term, even within Freud's own writing, but I think that an accurate and consistent definition of the unconscious is that it is the system of desires, drives, and wishes that contradict, subvert, you could even maybe say militate against our conscious wishes. So what psychoanalysis ultimately gives us instead of a, a whole subject or a fully integrated subject is a, is a split subject instead. And the split that I'm referring to is between our object-oriented desires and desires and drives that have no real object. And as you can imagine, this kind of creates a lot of havoc in a wide body of, of, of theory that tends to supply a, an object or a, at least a goal for the critique. And this is certainly the case within eco-criticism. So my interest in psychoanalysis is a uh, kind of an interventionist to show that, by and large, um, eco-criticism really focuses on that one side of the split and tends to ignore the, the site of the unconscious that Freud and Lacan really bring to our, has no real object. And I think once we orient ourselves to that split within our subjectivity, forces us to try and kind of invent a new, a new type of eco-criticism. Part of what I've tried to do here is bringing psychoanalysis into conversation both with eco-criticism but also my home discipline of early modern studies where 
I think it's safe to say uh, psychoanalysis has been kind of maybe kept to the margins of, of early modern scholarship, certainly eco-critical scholarship for, for a long time. Part of what I'm trying to do is thinking about is think about two things, the interrelationship between structures that if we're thinking about it in a psychoanalytic sense, structures that got repeat throughout time history, so across places, geographies, and uh, historical periods, to think about that in relationship to historical particularity, right? So how, how can you think about someone like John Milton in the same settings or in the same conversation as, as Jacques Lacan? And one of the things that I find kind of animating for this theory is that both Freud and Lacan are really interested in pre-modern thinkers. So one of the touchstones in my book is the ancient poet Lucretius, who was really useful for me in terms of making this leap, just as Freud imagines the psyche is split between these kind of conscious and unconscious desires. Lucretius gives us a material universe that is likewise split between the kind of yoking together of different uh, materials, what he calls atoms, um, and void on, on the other hand. Now, we're not yet at a theory of the unconscious, so he's not a fully developed one, but it is striking how similar the Lucretian concept of the material universe, uh, which is this kind of self-divided universe, is to one of Lacan's more famous aphorisms about the unconscious, which then it's, which is that it's structured like a language. And one of the kind of things that I find so fascinating about Lucretius is that he he too takes a kind of linguistic or poetic model for thinking about the structure of the material world as this interrelation of of different parts, like uh, letters, the letters of the alphabet, and this surplus or this absence that again he he calls void and, and so. There are two parts to this question. One, I think that there are these trans-historical structures that I'm right. interested in in locating in different texts. Um, but there are also these linkages within the texts themselves that are pointing the way to these, I think, fruitful connections between the literature, the science of, of the times, and Freudian and Lacanian psychoanalysis. How do you use, how do we use the environmental unconscious and or like how do you use it in this book and if you can give us an example of a reading uh, from the book the question of use is always a kind of a minefield in psychoanalysis yeah. because it is yeah. it is a, yeah. it, it is a, I think it, it is unique among other schools of thought because I think it is primarily useful as a form of disruption to other other theories, uh, other maybe modes of reading. And I turned to psychoanalysis really as a, uh, as a way of thinking through, of making sense of my own dissatisfaction with some of the, some of the tropes, the habits, the patterns within eco-criticism, within my own thinking and, and writing. When I, when I first started off uh, um, writing this, this book in a largely kind of new materialist uh, mode, uh, for all the reasons that, that you know we've we've been talking about it, it it seems like environmental studies and the environmental humanities broadly that it's very good at suggesting to go back to your question very useful ways of living better, uh, <laughs> um, but it doesn't seem to give a very complex account of psyche, and I would even say that the the main thrust of a lot of environmental criticism is is. Um, 
uh, opposed to a kind of robust thinking about subjectivity or, or, or the psyche insofar as it tends to try and liquidate the subject and make it just one object among countless others. Right. So, um, so for all these reasons, I, I found it necessary to change my toolkit and look at this um, body of theory, psychoanalysis, that seems utterly kind of incompatible and foreign to the protocols of uh, eco-criticism and maybe, maybe theory broadly. Um, and part of the reason for doing this was that I was interested in poets. So my chapter is focused on Edmund Spencer, who we mentioned before, uh, Walter, Wright, Walter Raleigh, excuse me, Andrew Marvell, and, and John Milton. And I found myself really interested in these poets who did very kind of uh, wild, to my mind, really interesting accounts of the natural world and our place in it, but don't necessarily fit in with a model that you might find in, I don't know, let's say your average kind of eco-critical study of Shakespeare, where the proposition is that if we turn to Shakespeare's text, it'll show us how to live in better accord with you know, any myriad things, animals, plants, minerals, and so on. Uh, the poets that I was interested in were doing just the opposite. One, they, they seem to have really no interest in, in protecting the natural world. They, um, and, and most of their poems are excessive, uh, excessively interested in, in uh, narrative and form, in detailing all the ways that we kind of sabotage our own self interest um so um you know i think to give uh one example of this i i focus a great amount of attention both attention both in the kind of final chapter of my book and in the conclusion to john milton's epic paradise lost where i think about the the, the paradox of two edemic figures adam and eve who at least in theory should be the kind of exemplars of, of of the good life, right? They they live in paradise. They have everything um, that that the garden can afford them, and, and so forth. And yet, for anyone who's familiar with this poem, you know that it it, it details in in great psychological um, complexity their dissatisfaction, increase and especially um, Eve's dis dissatisfaction, and by extension Adam's dissatisfaction with their relationship. So it's. It's both a fascinating text for thinking about the complexities of the couple, um, and it's also um, a, a fascinating text for thinking about the the relationship between um, the human subject and and the natural world. And and part of the argument that I I make there is that one of the things that Milton is chronicling in Paradise Lost is not just the loss of of Eden, but this much profounder loss, which is this loss of the kind of excess that they're already able to obtain in in the garden through their daily labors, through all the obstacles that they see as getting in the way of their fuller satisfaction, even particular kind of laments having to work so assiduously day after day to maintain the garden, which kind of grows wantonly and excessively and always undoes their labors. And imagines this excess as an obstacle to a happier, fuller existence. Uh, again, which is very kind of strange in this telling of this retelling of, of the Genesis story. My claim is that um, what they kind of remain unconscious to is that those obstacles are the very source of their satisfaction. So 
not only do they end up losing the guardian by the end of the poem, but they also lose that 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 obstacle that seems to both spur their desire with within the guardian, but 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 you can also see it as as just spurring this ecological excessiveness that that Milton also likes to imagine figuratively throughout that poem too. So I think that's that's one aspect of the environmental conscious that I'm really interested in, and one thing that I think is maybe a, a, a step beyond or or at least a departure from a strict Lacanian version of psychoanalysis. Lacan is committed to maintaining this divide between human desire. One of the think of the departures that I make from a kind of um, uh, strict looking interpretation is trying to think about the environmental unconscious beyond the strict parameters of, of human desire. In part because I I think I'm I tend to be more of a dialectical thinker. So one of the questions that I keep coming up against is, well, I I, I buy the Lacanian interpretation of this split subject and. Thinking about the, the the divide between our unconscious and conscious desires, but but my question is always, where does that split come from, and 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 why would it only be the sole, you know, feature of of, of the human subject uh, alone? And so one of the things that I I find fascinating about these poets is that they imagine a, a, a an environment that is likewise kind of lacking in some ways, and through their their, their formal nuance of their poems also represents the natural world in a way that's filled with interesting kind of gaps and fissures and illusions that for me really changes the terrain of eco-criticism changes both the objects of study um right looking for maybe formal features as opposed to having our environmental readings always be so content-based that is pointing to uh, animals and plants that happen to appear in this poem or this film or this novel. So it, I think it affords us a more formal analysis. And it also, I think, changes the outcomes of our readings um, and, and maybe even also um, widens the the, the, the the kinds of texts that we can look at in doing our environmental analysis. Like I said, the, these poets who I look at, um, Walter Raleigh was uh, involved in colonialist adventures um, in the Americas, same with Edmund Spencer in, in Ireland. And these are thinkers who I, I don't think have any real interest in preserving the natural world. They are thinkers of conquest. Nonetheless, against their conscious intentions, they present uh, 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 subjects in their poems and and give us representations of the natural world that are, are really rich in a, uh, a kind of uh, a poetics that seems in tune with what I'm calling the environmental unconscious. So uh, my final question is, how will the environmental unconscious save the world? I, I think it is maybe the question, uh, especially in the fields that I tend to operate in. So I've been talking about um, the environmental humanities and eco-criticism. And now my sense is that although maybe the uh, the excitement around uh, eco-criticism has maybe died down a little bit, my, my sense is that it's also saturated. Interest in entanglements or, or the various metaphors of entanglements, meshes and relationality, um, relationalities beyond the human, seems such a part of our theoretical vocabulary today. And I think part of what I'm trying to do is resist the reparative mode that might 
to quickly see these entanglements alone as a solution to our various forms of discontent. I, I think one of the things that I find very honest about Freud's thought is that he doesn't posit a future beyond the split that we've been talking about, the split in human subjectivity, and that I'm suggesting we might be able to read broadly throughout the natural world. Instead, he and, and the Kantu try, both in their theory and in their practice as analysts, to reconcile us to that split and to develop a, a radical theory and perhaps even a politics on the basis of that split alone. So in the environment in the of unconscious, in this book, and in by various writings around this book, I'm trying to be faithful to that split which is not to say that I am not interested in saving the world. I just I just am a little bit skeptical and, dare I say, paranoid and suspicious about some of the easy and ready-to-use formulas that are available in critical theory today. All of this is to say that I, I'm not sure that psychoanalysis never really necessarily gives us a program to act on for saving the world. Obviously, I do think that there are ways of changing our world dramatically that would improve things. But I think Freud's point is that even in a dramatically, even in a fundamentally transformed, maybe even socialist world, we would still be confronting what he calls our ordinary unhappiness. I find that, I find that there's something powerful about that in part because it, it changes the framework for how we do theory, it changes the trajectory of theory. It certainly, I think, forces us to be a little less moralistic about our theories, um, a little less maybe optic about about our theories. But to be a little practical about it, I think there is a way of trying to think about and maybe a practical politics that takes psychoanalysis as its basis, the the politics of, of degrowth, which is a sort of a, a, a point of great interest within environmental studies, especially kind of uh, socialist environmental studies, um, that is, ways of planning the economy to, to degrow it, uh, it, as opposed to the kind of greenwashed capitalist rhetoric that uh, imagines ways of uh, maybe, I don't know, creating more solar panels, but nonetheless still growing the capitalist economy. Um, and I've also been interested in this idea of, of divestment, of, of how to live a life that is interested in, that is that divests from many of the attachments that we know are um, ecocidal and, and, and deleterious to our, to our coexistence. And one of the things that I find powerful about attuning ourselves as Freud would have it to this split or, or maybe trying to keep the unconscious investment in dissatisfaction at the forefront of our minds, as hard as that is, is that I think if we start to imagine that the real source of our enjoyment comes from the obstacle or comes from missing the object that we imagine will satisfy us or that we want, I think on that basis, it, it becomes possible to imagine divesting from all the many things that promise to fulfill us or, or to give us a more satisfying existence. I think that applies both to the the, the, the many promises that we're bombarded by with in a capitalist society. And as I suggest within my book, it also means we have to divest from some of the promises that we make within theory and eco-criticism as well, and to try and live with some of the 
disappointment and loss that nonetheless we all share according to the psychoanalytic model and that might be the basis for a, a truly kind of um, socialist existence. Absolutely. And I'm so excited to finish. I haven't finished the book yet, but I'm so excited to finish the book, Stephen. Thank you so much for coming to High Theory and talking to us about the environmental unconscious. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk about my favorite subject, just theory. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio and Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. <laughs>